This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, it's time for one of our periodic chats with Toronto Mayor John Tory. It comes as we're in the midst of a more than week-long spike in the number of cases, and we're just at the beginning of the back-to-school season here in the GTA. The increase is being attributed to young people partying, and the mayor is floating the idea of closing bars and shutting down drinking earlier. You just heard the premier saying that he would support that. And this Justin, Quebec, starting Monday, is going to issue fines if masks are not worn indoors. So let's start with all of that. I'd like to uh, to welcome Mayor John Tory. Hi, Mayor. Hey, Libby. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Great. Thank you. So uh, this idea of shutting the bars down early, uh, my question is, is there evidence that this would actually help? Well, the Medical Officer of Health and I have talked about this, uh, the Toronto Medical Officer of Health, for some time. And in fact, this is not something that I recently suggested. I actually wrote uh, to the Premier as part of a number of suggestions we made when we entered into Phase 3, which included, for example, something they did adopt, which is that people have to sit in their chairs in restaurants and bars and can't sort of wander around with a drink in their hand because this is just bringing them into close contact with others and, and, uh, you know, can help with the spread of the virus. But at the time, we suggested uh, stopping serving alcohol at midnight. Um, They chose not to accept that uh, as something they would do. and I know an interesting reason it came up again is because they recently uh, actually did it in British Columbia, where I think they stopped serving alcohol there at 10 o'clock. And I don't think any of these things taken you know, on their own represent, you know, the magic solution to the spread of the COVID virus. But I think in combination, the face coverings and the, you know, restrictions on physical distancing and the requirements to sit, you know, a certain distance apart in restaurants. And I would say maybe the closing down of, of bars a bit earlier would, uh, would all make a contribution to that of some degree or another. The fact is we don't really know exactly, um, you know, sort of why people are getting this virus. We're, we're working hard to analyze the cases that we're tracing now. So it's not I, I never presented it as uh, either something that I have been revisiting or as something that would be a magic answer, but it was just something that I mentioned the other day that we'd uh, put forward in, in the past. And I will say there is an honest disagreement between lawyers about who has the power to do what. And the Premier and I spoke about that yesterday, and we're going to try and sort of get the lawyers to resolve who has the authority to do what. And then it means if we want to do something, at least we'll know who has the uh, legal power. We don't believe we do, even though he uh, suggested otherwise. Yeah, we just heard him say, hey, Section 22, I think. Go ahead. You know, you go. Well, I mean, I've read Section 22. I'm a lawyer. I've also had, more more important than that, I've had our expert lawyers uh, at the City Solicitor's Department read it, and they have a different interpretation as to what it allows us to do. And I would pose the question, and again, I don't want to get into a debate because the Premier and I agree we try and work this out because we've been working so well together on, on this whole COVID thing. But, you know, why would I have written and asked him to do it if I thought I could do it myself, you know, back in July or whenever I wrote to him? Uh, do you think, though, on the other <laughs> hand, I mean, uh, we have seen, because the weather has been so great, that uh, some restaurants and patios are doing okay 
knock for mica or whatever it is I'm sitting at. Uh, do you think that by shutting down drinking earlier, you would put a crimp in that? Because, uh, you know, the likelihood is when it starts to get colder, they're going to be have problems again. When I wrote uh, to the Premier about this back in July, that was precisely the feedback I got from the restaurant and bar industry. And heavens above, uh, I'm going to be making some comments tomorrow about the need for the governments to step forward and do a lot more for that sector because they're struggling badly. But I think you know, in the midst of all this, uh, we've been having to place health first in a difficult kind of balancing act as between the public health requirements and how much good it will do and the economic consequences of that. And and so I don't think we can we, we can not talk about these options. I think we have to talk about them. And I think we have to answer the very question you asked me, which is, OK, if you did something like this, how much benefit would it have on the health side and how much damage would it do on the economic side? And obviously, if it did no benefit on the health side, and caused a lot of economic damage, uh, then you wouldn't do it. But uh, I just think that these things are all things we have to consider. Uh, And when you see a province like British Columbia doing it, um, you have to sort of conclude that they did it for a reason. They just didn't do it because they wanted to hurt bars and restaurants. And you also see some of the examples, like the most recent one I saw was a... um, uh, karaoke bar in Montreal that had like 25 cases come out of there of COVID-19. But in the end, you know what? The real determinant of how this virus spreads or doesn't spread is going to come from changes to human behavior. And people have been terrific about that, uh, you know, whether it's wearing face coverings or keeping their distance. But, you know, really the advice I've been giving, and so is the Premier and others, which is to stay away from crowd scenes generally, wherever it is, at a wedding, at a bar, at a, uh, you know, any place, uh, that's going to be the best thing that people can do. And wear face coverings and wash your hands, all the pretty basic advice that's been happening since the beginning. Is, is it, would it be fair to differentiate between having a second glass of wine on a patio at 10 and a bar where people are standing around moving around? Yes, very much so. And in fact, uh, you know, we, we facilitated the construction of, of literally hundreds of, of additional patio extensions outside of restaurants to help give them a fighting chance to uh, stay in business. And part of the rationale behind that was that it was outside where the medical experts have told us, as you know, that the virus is much less likely to spread, especially if you sit a certain distance apart. And, and for that matter, if you wear much of that time face covering. But what's gone on in some places where we're trying to come to grips with the enforcement is people getting up, milling about, as they will do in normal times in, in a bar, go around table to table and chit chat with people. And uh, even in some cases, music. And people may say, why are you placing a restriction on music? Well, the louder the music, the louder you talk. The louder you talk, the more of those water droplets that carry the virus spread from person to person. So, you know, we placed a lot of these restrictions on, and most people have abided by them, but some have not, and that's where the problem comes up. But you're certainly better off having that second glass of wine, sitting at a table six feet apart from the other people outside, as opposed to people, you know, that are kind of milling about in close quarters or, or inside doing the same thing. Well, uh, uh, there there are those of us here who applaud in any circumstance turning the music down to a reasonable level so we can have conversations when we're yeah. up. But that is a whole um, other subject. story. Yeah. Um, were you surprised by the number of tickets issued by Photo Radar in just a month? Well, yes and no. You see, the thing is, we had had to go out as a matter of uh, legal requirement and test the equipment, uh, because in order to test it, you had to sort of precisely calibrate it and understand how it works, so the law would be able to cope with, you know, uh, making sure it was working properly. And during the test periods, we'd had very substantial, not only very substantial numbers of people who didn't get a ticket because the law wasn't yet in place, but who violated the speed limit. And uh, we had some incredible speeds, too, like the most recent one with the official operation of the uh, 
automated speed enforcement cameras was, I think it was 89 in a 40 zone. So that's like 50 kilometers an hour plus over the limit on a residential street in a school zone, which is almost inconceivable. But we had seen the pattern of this. And so I guess once we deployed the 50 cameras for real, uh, the fact that we had that many tickets wasn't a total surprise to me, but it still surprises you there are that many people. And, you know, when you hear examples like the one I just cited or, or the example from Scarborough, where one person got 12 tickets in the first month, one, one, like one car, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just find that almost beyond belief. That's somebody who's just speeding as a chronic problem that they obviously have. And, um, you know, and has that, money to burn. Well, I'm not sure they do, you know, but the whole idea, I said the real test of this thing is going to be in two months when I report again or a couple of months when I report again on the numbers. And you really hope those numbers have gone down, not up for those 50 cameras, because what you hope is that that first wave of tickets, which is very big, uh, has taught people a lesson that they're going to say, hey, I can't just do this anymore without paying a price for it. And I'm going to slow down, which is really what we want. I wouldn't, I'd be very happy if the 50 cameras didn't issue one ticket, you know, by a year from now, because it would mean to me that people got the message. Uh, Let's uh, move on. Today is the opening of the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, It is virtual. It's with drive-ins. But this is an event that really, in addition to putting the city on the map, uh, you know, contributes a huge amount of money. Again, restaurants, uh, movie theaters, everything. What, uh, you know, do you have a tally of how much not having it is going to cost the city? Well, in actual fact, a lot of these kinds of events that have been cancelled, and I deeply regret they have been, whether it's Pride or the Caribbean Carnival or the Taste of the Danforth or the Film Festival, are cancelled or substantially modified. The city actually itself doesn't get a lot of money. It's one of the sort of setups of our tax structure that the sales taxes that are paid and so forth on hotel rooms and drinks and restaurant meals all go to the other governments. Um, Ultimately, but we are, we, are the, the we are the beneficiaries, though, of, of that activity in the city that keeps businesses strong and keeps the downtown and other parts of the city active. So the price to be paid by the city is big. And I think what's even more important is the price to be paid by these organizations. I mean, TIFF itself, you know, won't have the ticket sales, won't have the same sponsorship revenue and so on. So it means they're going to be in a financial hole as well, which, by the way, I would be committed to helping the other governments address in some way or other, just because TIFF has to be strong and has to be financially uh, solvent. But, uh, you know, bless them, uh, Cameron uh, Bailey and, and uh, Joanna Vincente for putting on a festival in a different way with the drive-ins. First one tonight at Ontario Place and the virtual festival that people can buy tickets to have screenings take place in the comfort of their own home. So thank goodness they're carrying on with it so that it doesn't, um, you know, kind of take a year off. And next year, I hope it'll be back bigger than better than ever. Well, uh, let's hope so, as well as all these other festivals that, you know, do so much for the city. Now I have to ask you about something that you you don't usually like when I ask you about, and um, that is the shelter we have here. You had a tent city in Nathan Phillips Square. Yeah. It's moved down here. Um, You cleared the one in Nathan Phillips Square. It doesn't look like uh, there's any interest in clearing the one down here, and the latest wrinkle, and I'm not even talking about um, unsafe things that go on as a matter of course, but the latest wrinkle, it's getting colder, and uh, Moses was here working last night, and fires near every tent that uh, we just say, boy, we hope they're contained. 
Well, I, I don't mind being asked about that, by the way. It's just a very, very perplexing and challenging problem for us because we have been uh, clearing these uh, tent encampments on a regular basis. In fact, hundreds of people have been moved from tent encampments to other kinds of housing. The challenge for us is that the way we do it in Toronto, and I think most people would approve of this, is we give notice of the fact the tent encampment is going to be removed. We take a period, usually 14 days, to find other housing for the people because those people have to live somewhere. Um, and then we take the encampment down after that. And we've been kind of doing them in in a way, in order of size. Uh, and I should tell you, one of the bases upon which we do it isn't just that it isn't really satisfactory to have people sleeping outside like that, especially as the weather gets colder, but also our fire chief has pointed out many times that these encampments are unsafe from the standpoint of fire, either because they're having open fires, as you suggest, or because they've had uh, many tanks. Like one of the encampments we cleared out, I think they found 16 propane tanks, and that is not a safe situation, either in a very confined uh, area like that. So um, we're doing our very best. Um, you know, I, I, I say to people who are saying, well, just get them out of there, I'd say, well, those are human beings that are um, vulnerable and they have to go somewhere so that we can't just sort of clear out the tent encampment, which they might do in some other parts of the continent, but not here. Um, here, what we try to do is in a methodical, compassionate, orderly way, uh, give people a warning that the encampment has to be taken down, uh, pursue other options for housing for them, and then uh, once uh, that has been done, uh, we take the encampments down and we've moved hundreds of people out of encampments uh, this summer already. Okay, and any plans to do that one, or at least to watch the fires? No, I mean, we have, the, there's a list of them, big and small, around the city, and we're, we're obviously trying our best to kind of deal with those in you know, some kind of an order, depending on different things. I mean, some of them are bigger than others. Some are in an area that's more adjacent to a residential neighborhood than others, uh, and so on. So there's a variety of circumstances that our staff uh, take a look at. And we have to make sure that uh, if we're going to take the encampment uh, out, that we have a place to uh, shelter uh, the people who are living there. So these are all challenges for us. Okay. Mayor John Tory, thanks so much for being with us. Let's talk, again uh, soon, Libby, talk to you soon. Thanks. Okay, thanks a lot. Okay, Bye. bye-bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.